Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tame of the True podcast. This week, we'll be recapping our most recent journal club, where we focused on a trio of articles that looked at the care of patients with sepsis and septic shock. First, we'll be looking into the use of balanced crystalloid fluids as opposed to normal saline. Also, look at the administration of steroids, and finally, look at different ways to guide our resuscitation. Do we need to do repeat lactates, or can we simply check someone's cap refill? First up is Dr. Adam Catula, who will be discussing the use of balanced crystalloid fluid versus normal saline. So, my name is Adam Catula. I'm a third year resident here at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and at Journal Club today, I'm going to be discussing the SALTIT trial and the SMART trial. Uh, the SALTIT trial is a uh, saline against lactate ringers or a plasmolite in the emergency department uh, in a non critically ill population. Uh, this compares balanced crystalloid, i.e., LR or plasmolite, to normosol. Their primary endpoint was ultimately or hospital free days at day 28 uh, with a couple of secondary endpoints. In a pragmatic sense, the treatments were assigned based on a calendar month with the first month randomization being determined based off a computer-generated randomization tool and the sequential months uh, were ultimately uh, randomized to each month just sort of following. The fluid given was solely based on the month assignment. Um, the patients weren't randomized, the months were randomized. Additionally, it should be noted that the fluid was only continued within the emergency department, and once they were admitted, the fluid decisions were left up to the uh, respective teams that they were admitted to. Within this trial, Patients that were included were patients over the age 18 who received over a half a liter or 500 mLs of crystalloid solution. And that's because the thought was if there was less than 500 mLs of crystalloid that their exposure to the agent just wasn't significant enough to really show an effect. And then these are all patients of note that were hospitalized outside of the ICU. The patients that were within the ICU were the patients that were included in the SMART trial, which we will briefly discuss at the end since it's a very similar trial. Within the SALTA trial, they included over 13,000 patients, 6,700 patients in the balanced crystalloid, and 6,600 patients within the normal saline. This was calculated to be powered at 90% to have a half a day difference for hospital-free days at day 28. Uh, ultimately, throughout the trial, a little over 88% of patients received only the assigned crystalloid. Now, when it comes to outcomes, all the outcomes were adjusted for age, sex, race, the admitting service, uh, and time. They did an intention-to-treat analysis, which ultimately was not significant for hospital-free days alive at day 28. It should be noted that if the patient expired in the hospital, they had zero alive days at day 28. And then all patients were only counted once if they visited the emergency department multiple times within the month. Secondary outcomes in the SALTIT trial included a composite of major adverse kidney events within 30 days. This was the only significant outcome within this trial. The composite of the major adverse kidney events within 30 days included death, new renal replacement therapy, and a final serum creatinine greater than 200% of the baseline. Now that brings the question of what is the baseline and how do they calculate the baseline? 
So the way the trial calculated the baseline was they took the lowest serum creatinine recorded within the past year. Now, if there was not a serum creatinine recorded for patients, as there was no serum creatinine recorded for 35% of the patients or over 4,600 patients, they used an equation to calculate an estimated serum creatinine, uh, which we can put in the notes, but it was essentially 0.74, where they took off two-tenths of a point if you were female. They added eight-hundredths of a point if you were African-American, and then they took three-thousandths of a point times your age and years and added that to it as well. So they basically estimated your creatinine based off of if you were male or female, uh, if you were African-American or not, and your age. And that's how they determined your baseline. The last outcome that they looked at was patients presenting with stage 2 AKI based off of the kidney disease improving global outcomes criteria. And that basically looks at a maximum serum creatinine that is at least 200% of the baseline value with an increase in serum creatinine concentration of at least 4 milligrams per deciliter or with an absolute increase of 0.5 mg per deciliter. Uh, it also includes uh, any initiation of new renal replacement therapy and then the uh, earliest before the earliest hospital discharge. Day. Now, this was additionally significant within 30 days when looking at balanced crystalloid versus saline. There was only 28% of people that met this criteria uh, with balanced crystalloid, whereas nearly 38% met this criteria with uh, normal saline. So that is sort of the quick overview of the SALTIT trial, uh, where the primary outcome was not significant. The only significant secondary outcomes were essentially all related to adverse kidney events. Now, we also are going to take a quick look, but less of an in-depth focus on the SMART trial, which is related to the SALTIT trial in a way. It's a very similar trial that was also conducted at Vanderbilt. It additionally looked at the balanced crystalloid versus normal saline. However, its outcome was a little bit different. It did not look at hospital-free days. It instead just looked at the adverse kidney events. Again, that is the rate of death, the need for new renal replacement, and uh, persistent renal dysfunction. This again was pragmatic, although the randomization was a little bit more complex as there were five ICUs involved opposed to one emergency department in the SALTIT trial. And each ICU was randomized similarly to the emergency department as it was randomized in month blocks, but the ICUs were not all randomized in unison with each other. Similarly, the major adverse kidney events at 30 days were significantly different, similar to the SALTIT trial. However, again, this was a composite difference. The individual criteria were not significantly different, although there was certainly a trend towards the balanced crystalloid. Now, when looking at both these studies, there's a couple criticisms you can have of both the studies. Both the studies were single-center studies. Both of them were non-blinded, so everybody in both departments knew what type of fluid the patients were getting. And then there was no separate analysis of LR versus plasma light. And frankly, there probably wasn't the power to do that as 95% of patients in the balanced solution received LR and only around 5% received plasma light. Specifically in the SMARTIT trial, they used five different ICUs ranging from medical to surgical. While their overall mortality for those ICUs was around 10%. I think most of us are pretty familiar with the fact that 
the mortality vary significantly in the different ICUs uh, from the surgical ICU to the medical ICU in that they have pretty significant differences in their patient populations that they care for. One having a much higher need for renal replacement therapy and kidney injury at baseline than the other, although it is certainly present in both. However, these ICUs were looked at as sort of one unit and as similar patients when in fact they are likely very unsimilar patients in reality. Uh, So that was another criticism of the trial. Overall speaking, I think this trial can, uh, both of these trials can let us know that uh, we do need to consider the crystalloid we are giving specifically in patients with uh, kidney issues who have elevated creatinines, uh, decreased GFRs, or uh, are trending towards uh, renal replacement therapy. My name is James Lee. I am a third-year resident at the Cincinnati Emergency Medicine Program. Today, I am going to be talking about the adrenal study. This is a a big study that tried to look at whether or not steroids improve patients with septic shock. A little bit of history on this. There's been kind of contradictory studies uh, throughout the past decade, also throughout the past multiple decades, that has made it puzzling for us to um, determine if steroids improve mortality or if they help patients at all in uh, septic shock. Back in 2002, there was a study that showed improved mortality when they had 300 patients in septic shock that received placebo versus hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone. Yet in 2008, a slightly bigger study with almost 500 septic shock patients showed no benefit when they looked at placebo versus hydrocortisone. There's been more recent studies, uh, such as the HyPress study in 2016, that had 380 patients with severe sepsis without the shock yet, and they tried to see if steroids, uh, in this case hydrocortisone versus placebo, prevented these patients from progressing towards septic shock, and there was no difference in progression in the first 48 hours. The adrenal study was a very large study that aimed to give us a final answer of whether hydrocortisone would help these patients or not. It was a large, multi-center, double-blinded, parallel group, randomized and controlled trial uh, through multiple countries. It included Australia sites, sites from the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, and Denmark. In this particular trial, they looked at whether 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone infused per day improved mortality when compared to placebo in pretty sick patients. And these patients were septic shock patients on mechanical ventilation and press their support for greater than four hours. To power their study, they had a goal to enroll 3,800 patients, and they met this goal uh, with small amounts of patients that ended up falling out of the study, but they still ended up with 3,658 studies in the final study. They enrolled patients from 2013 to 2017 um, under the intention to treat analysis, and some other bonuses was the pharmaceutical companies that supplied some of these medications did not have any input into the design or um, the analysis of the trial. One thing to note is that they used an infusion of hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams per day, whereas oftentimes, at least in my experience, I see the same dosage but given in bolus dosing, 50 milligrams four times a day. For their inclusion criteria, uh, they had to have a clinical suspicion for infection. They had to meet two or more of the SEERS criteria. They had to require some sort of vasopressor uh, for systolic blood pressure of greater than 90 or MAP greater than 60 for four hours and also be on mechanical ventilation. Exclusion criteria included patients that received steroids for any other reason. If they got etomidate as part of their RSI, they were getting amphotericin B for fungal infections. If they had some other strange infections such as cerebral malaria, strongyloides, or if they had a life expectancy of under 90 days from prior disease, or if they had DNR or other similar 
limitations for treatment. For their primary outcome, they were looking at 90-day mortality, and this is a patient-centered outcome. Um, they had multiple secondary outcomes they looked at, such as shock reversal, recurrence of shock, time to discharge, how long they were ventilated, days alive and free of ventilation, frequency of renal replacement therapy, days alive and free of renal replacement therapy, new infections, and blood transfusions. They also did subgroup analysis and stratified the patient population by sex, admission type, pressor dose, site of sepsis, the Apache 2 score, and also time from shock onset to randomization. The results show no difference in mortality, which was their primary outcome, um, but they did find some significant differences um, in some of their secondary outcomes. They found that the time to shock resolution was reduced in the hydrocortisone group. They found the time to discharge from the ICU setting to be decreased in the hydrocortisone group. There was also shorter mechanical ventilation and less blood transfusions when patients received steroids. They looked at adverse events as well, which were based on clinical judgment, and they did not do any uh, additional analysis of the adverse events beyond that, but there was more in the steroid group versus the placebo group. This study had multiple strengths. It was a very large study. It was randomized. It was blinded, and the information was hidden behind computers with passwords. It included multiple countries, and there was no outside interference with the analysis and data. Um, they also did a great job of publishing ahead of time their statistical analysis plan um, so they could reduce bias and not change things uh, later on in the trial. They looked at the primary outcome in various subgroups, and their patient uh, characteristics were very similar with similar age, similar types of infections, with pulmonary being the major one, and abdominal and blood being the follow-up major ones. And they had relatively very few patients lost to follow-up. Some of the weaknesses of the study uh, included excluding patients that received etomidate due to that theoretical risk of it being an adrenosuppressing drug. Their adverse events were based purely on clinical judgment and had no other analysis. There was no data on secondary infections, and there was no evaluation of whether or not the appropriate antibiotic choice was chosen for these uh, patients with infections. There was no cost-benefit analysis, and it was unclear exactly how much fluid patients received because fluid overload could, at times, cause poor outcomes in some patients. Overall, what to take away clinically from this study is that there are some secondary benefits, um, but there is no benefit in mortality at 90 days. Whether or not this trial was powered to see if these secondary outcomes would be accurate is difficult to say, and I think future studies should look at some of these pieces of information. I would argue that clinically, having shorter time to shock resolution Getting out of the ICU quicker and being um, on mechanical ventilation for a shorter amount of time could be beneficial. The current surviving sepsis guidelines recommend giving hydrocortisone or steroids after you fluid resuscitate adequately and if they still have poor blood pressures after vasopressors. And we can argue that some of these secondary benefits could be a benefit to our patients with the caution that just because you're in a tough situation and trying to do the best for your patient, we don't have the perfect evidence available quite yet. Hello, everybody. My name is Sean Modi. I'm one of the third-year residents of the University of Cincinnati. And today I have the pleasure of discussing the abdominal shock trial that was done by Hernandez as well as the Latin American uh, Intensive Care Network in uh, February of 2019. Before I begin... I kind of want to talk about something that happened in my childhood. When I was a kid, I would go to the mall with my parents because they wanted to waste some of my energy that I had when I was younger, and they would make me window shop. I never got to buy anything, so I never really got to realize what I was looking at and see the potential of it, and that's kind of what the adrenal shock trial reminded me of. If you looked at the conclusion of this trial, people that trended lactates beforehand would look at it and say, well, 
it doesn't show a clinical difference. So we shouldn't trend lact. We should always just trend lactates and um, just continue that form for trending sepsis. However, if you took a deeper dive into this article, there's many meaningful conclusions that can be made that weren't statistically significant, but became important to our practice, which I'll discuss today. As a background, this this question, the question they asked in this trial was, does the resuscitation strategy targeting the normalization of capillary refill time compared with targeting serum lactate levels reduce mortality in patients with septic shock, and primarily mortality at 28 days? The background for this is that persistent lactin- hyperlactinemia may be related to other causes rather than tissue hyperperfusion, such as whenever you have uh, uses of high doses of epinephrine, they can, perf- they can cause lactate to go to a higher level than normal. In addition, lactate can be slow to correct in in the overly aggressive fluid resuscitated patient. Lactate is not universally available at, in all countries, and specifically in this uh, study, they use countries in Argentina, Chile, uh, Colombia, Ecuador, and Uruguay, and they took 28 ICUs out of these countries, and all, not all of them, um, well, all of them in this scenario had lactates, but not all of the hospitals in these countries do have lactates to readily use for their septic patients. And lastly, the, the use of capillary refill time was something that we used to use in the 70s that kind of went out of favor with early goal-directed therapy with Manny Rivers, as well as some other measures that we used to use, like central venous oxygen saturation, in, in addition to just leukocytosis with, with the CBC. And now that CRT is coming back in this trial, I thought it was very interesting to go back to something that we thought was inferior in the past and use it to be measured against something that we think is the modern-day way to trend sepsis. And capillary refill time, or CRT, is actually been shown to, in a couple studies to be a better measure of gut ischemia, as skin capillary vessels clamp down significantly in sepsis, similar to splanchnic vasoconstriction in the gut. Um, so CRT may be actually a good measure of capillary refill time, not only in the skin, but also in other visceral organs as well. The design of the study... Uh, I already told you about you the, the amount of ICUs and countries that were involved, but 424 patients were ultimately recruited out of 1,327 that are assessed for eligibility. The inclusion criteria included adult patients that are 18 years or older and admitted to the ICU with septic shock. They did have a confirmed infection or suspected infection, um, a lactate greater than 2 on admission, and vasopressors to maintain their MAP greater than 65 after getting an IV fluid load of at least 20 mils per kilo, which differs than our surviving sepsis guidelines of 30 mils per kilo that we do in the United States. Some of the exclusion criteria were those that were bleeding, so any traumatic patient, anyone that had ARDS, and then anyone that was a DNR status. The intervention was eight hours, um, and the person that was doing CRT was trained by um, a group of trainers in which they took a glass slide and they put it on the distal phalanx on the volar aspect of the distal phalanx for 10 seconds, um, or at least till the skin turned pale. And then after that, they would measure cap refill time. They call it a chronometer, but that means they just use a stopwatch to measure cap refill time in these patients. The cap refill time was assessed every 30 minutes because there's a faster rate of recovery for cap refill time when compared to lactate, and lactate was measured every two hours. The groups or the group goal was to either normalize CRT um, or and, and normalization of CRT was called a le, uh, capillary refill time less than three seconds or decrease lactic levels by 20% every two hours. The first part of the study protocol, which I thought was extremely interesting, is because this was done in such a pragmatic way that I haven't seen any um, other trial do before, is they assess for fluid responsiveness. And the way they did that is in those that were mechanically ventilated, they used pulse pressure variation. And let me preface that all these people that went in this trial actually had A-lines and central venous catheters placed at the time. 
In addition, other ways they did it was an expiratory occlusion test in which way they um, basically at the end of expiration, they hold your vent for 30 seconds and they see if you have a difference in MAP or cardiac output. MAP is, is used as a surrogate of cardiac output through your A-line, but another way they can do it is using VTI or volume um, time intervals in which they take an echo probe and they get an apical five view and do a continuous wave Doppler over the aorta and then times it by the heart rate to get a surrogate for cardiac output. And they would use that to see if pre- uh, your heart was preload or fluid uh, responsive. Lastly, uh, another way they did, which is kind of more similar way that we, that we do it downstairs and also in the ICU at times is just doing passive leg raise and seeing if um, their MAP increased as well. They would continue the assessment of fluid responsiveness until responsive, meaning like if if you had a pulse pressure variation and I gave you fluid and your pulse pressure variation decreased, they would classify you as fluid responsive and keep giving you fluid until you became less responsive or safety limit was reached. For them, that means their, their CVP, which they also have measuring at the time, increased by 5 millimeters of mercury. If there was no pulse pressure variation. If there's nothing that suggests fluid responsiveness, they would move on to the second part of the protocol in which they would look at the past medical history of the patient, see if they had chronic hypertension. If they did, they would increase their leave of fed that they had going um, or any other vasopressors until the MAP was 80 to 85 and then uh, trend serial lactates or do serial CRT measurements um, to see which ones got better um, and keep doing that until they got better. If there was no response, meaning if, if you had a lactate of five and then you increase your vasopressors and your lactate was still five after two hours, they would seize that part of the, the protocol and move on to the next step, which was initiating low-dose dobutamine or milrinone. And low-dose dobutamine meaning like 2.5 to 5 and milrinone being uh, 0.125. The outcomes for this, I already discussed that it was all-cause mortality at 28 days, but some of the secondary outcomes include um, death within 90 days, uh, organ dysfunction within the first 72 hours that was assessed by the SOFA score, ventilation-free days, vasopressor-free days, CRT-free uh, days, as well as ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay. I'm not going to go into the weeds about a statistical analysis, but one uh thing that's very important to mention is that the enrollment of 420 patients was based off a sample size that had 90% power to detect a uh, reduction in mortality from 45% to 30%. So their their study was actually powered very, very high to, to detect a strong difference. And, and a lot of the prior trials on sepsis don't actually have this magnitude of difference in mortality to, to make a significant um, change or, or prove significance, which is a pretty big deal. The treatment effects of primary outcomes just uh, briefly were measured with a Cox proportional hazards using a Kaplan marker in which they used five uh, baseline covariates, which was the Apache 2 score, the SOFA score, the lactate level, CRT, and source of infection. Primary results for this trial was that at day 28, a total of 74 patients, or 34.9% of the CRT group, had died, whereas 92 patients in the lactate group, or 43.4%, um, had actually died. And that it did not approach significance because the p-value was 0.06, despite there being a approximately 8% difference in these groups. The uh, other other conclusions that were made is that compared to the lactate group, the CRT group had 408 less um, millimeters, of, or excuse me, milliliters of uh, fluid infused in the first eight hours. They also had less epinephrine use, 
uh, 9.9% was used in the CR3 group compared to 165 in the lactate group, which, which did approach significance. The lactate levels in the CRT group at 48 hours and 72 hours were significantly different. They were approximately less uh, by point. Uh, 3.6, a mean difference with that, with a p-value of 0.01. And only 29% of the CRT groups required a vasopressor test when compared to the lactate group, showing that conventional measurements of fluid responsiveness could be better than uh, with using CRT rather than using a lactate to trend for fluid responsiveness. Uh, what's also impressive is that 242 of the patients were fluid responsive, or 57% of the whole entire trial, and 106 patients were not, which is 25%. They're unable to tell in the remainder, but this kind of differs from the Fennis trial that was done years prior when, when they stated that fluid responsiveness cannot be ascertained that well. And this study appeared to say that, that there was a significant difference enough to tell fluid responsiveness. And the lack of adherence to protocol was very low in the study. Only 29 patients in the CRT group, or 13.7%, did not adhere to protocol, where, and 23%, or excuse me, 23 in the lactate group were 10%. Um, didn't adhere in the lactate group, which is is similar to what you would want in these studies. You want around 10% to, to have a good quality study. Other outcomes that I'll, I'll, I'll just mention briefly is that the SOFA score for the um, CRT T group was lower in the first 72 hours uh, by approximately 1, um, and this was a significant p-value of 0.045. And lastly, there was no other significance between any of the other secondary outcomes, meaning ventilation days, um, CRT-free days, vasopressor-free days, ICU length of stay, or hospital length of stay. So just to kind of conclude and talk about the main points of this, this study is peripheral perf uh, perfusion target resuscitation using capillary refill times, although it didn't prove significance based off the power that they chose, it was actually trending towards significance. An 8% difference in mortality is, is fairly significant, at least for clinical practice. And even then, it does show me that CRT can be non-inferior to lactate in terms of trending for fluid responsiveness and vasopressor use in um, sepsis. In addition, if, if you want to look at SOFA scores, uh, SOFA scores were also lower in the CRT group, which also shows that there may be a trend toward better resuscitation in the patients in the CRT group as well. The strengths of this trial is that they had, it was multinationals, randomized control trial. Um, it was, most of the people that got eligible and randomized occurred within 1.4 hours, so it was pretty fast to get people registered. Lastly, it, it reflected kind of the contemporary practices that aren't just used in, in Latin America, but also in the United States, um, which was nice because even though it's 20 mils per kilo, um, it's the, the results are still applicable to our patient population. The limitations were, like I said before, there's, it was underpowered to answer the study question because it was calculated on an absolute risk reduction of 15%, and we didn't um, expect that with this study. The clinicians were non-blinded, which I forgot to mention, which may lead to some bias. However, with serial lactates and CRT being measured in both groups, bias is kind of reduced in that standpoint. Lastly, day 28 as a mortality benefit in, in, or mortality measurement in, in sepsis trials is not shown to be as stable as a day 90 mortality. Um, measurement. And so that's something that maybe they can use in the future for future trials. Thank you, everybody, for joining us again this week on the Tank Mother's Group podcast. Hope to see you again.